Welcome to Archiving a K, a podcast of archives and special collections at the UAA APU Consortium Library in Anchorage, Alaska. We're here to talk about what we do, what our researchers are up to, and to give you a closer look at the world of archives. This is Arlene. I recently had a conversation with three colleagues at the Ketchikan Museums, Haley Chambers, Erica Christian, and Ryan McHale. We really got into this conversation, so much so, in fact, that by the time we stopped talking, or rather I had to cut off to get to another appointment, we'd recorded for close to two hours, and I didn't really want to lose a lot of it. Thankfully, they left me a reasonable dividing point, and so we have what I think is our first two-part podcast. So here's Season 2, Episode 6, Part 1, and we'll start out with introductions. Yeah, Um, Haley's our our rock star today, uh, you know, (laughs) representing our archives and our collection, so we're totally putting Haley Center for you, Um, even though she is, you know, off to the side. (laughs) We'll go down the line. There we go. Um, yeah, so I'm Haley Chambers. I'm the Senior Curator of Collections with Ketchikan Museums. Um, in a couple of weeks, I will be celebrating my seventh anniversary. Wow. Woo-hoo. <laughs> uh, sure. So uh, my name is Erica Jane Christian, and I'm the Program Coordinator for Ketchikan Museums. Great. Nice. Oh, uh, <laughs> nice and sweet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Ryan McHale. I'm the curator of exhibits, and I've been at the museum for almost two years now. Great. So let's first set the scene. Tell, t- tell us a little bit about your museum collections, what kinds of work you do, uh, you know, take turns talking, talk over each other. <laughs> And as you get curious about things, Arlene, feel free, you know, uh, I'm sure you you gave us a wonderful list of some of the things you were curious about, and we'd love to expand on those, uh, you know, as we state that curiosity on your end. Cool. Okay. So I'll jump in, um, being the collections person. Um, So our uh, Ketchikan Museums uh, consists of two facilities. We have the Tongass Historical Museum and the Totem Heritage Center. Both do different things. Um, The Historical Museum covers general history for Ketchikan and our surrounding areas. Uh, While the Totem Heritage Center um, exhibits a collection of original Clinket and Haida totem poles um, from nearby village sites. And it's also a place where we are actively uh, helping to perpetuate Native culture and traditions. Uh, We have a very active Native Arts Studies program that's been in, in the works for over 40 years. But circling back to the collections, Ketchikan Museums is a municipal organization, so we're a department of the city of Ketchikan, and we take care of two collections. We have the city's collection, um, as well as the Tongass Historical Society's collection. So the city of Ketchikan tends to be a little bit more modern, the historical society collection that began back in the 60s, early 60s, and that tends to be a little bit heavier on our archives and historical information. 
But as a general history museum, you know, we collect obviously relevant and meaningful things that talk about Ketchikan's past um, and our surrounding areas. Um, but in, in recent years, we've been doing a lot of work with contemporary collecting. And that started out when we were redoing our permanent exhibit at the Historical Museum. Our exhibits curator at the time wanted to represent you know, how important tides were to the community. So mm. we went around the community and we collected tide tables from every business that we possibly could. And I, I think we got 23 of them, which is really wow. impressive. Like even um, coffee shops had tide tables and hardware <laughs> store. So they were everywhere. And I'm sure that I didn't even get like all of them either. <laughs> I'm, I'm I, sure there are other ones out there, but that kind of got us, thinking about, you know, how to represent Ketchikan, what's happening now. And the next year after that, I started collecting business cards. Um, and that has been an interesting project. I think I'm in like year three of collecting business cards and pretty much anybody who will listen to me, I will talk to you about it. But um, it, it just, it had started out as me like cleaning around my desk area. And I found the Rolodex from the previous curator, um, he'd been at the museum for close to 20 years, and he had saved a lot of business cards, and there were names I recognized, some people had passed away, there were businesses that I recognized, businesses that I didn't know about, and I thought, wow, you know, this is kind of cool, so I had saved around 100 of them, and I started asking my coworkers, and then I had a couple hundred, and then I started talking to other people in the community and, um, and a lot of people who were, you know, getting rid of stuff. And I've now got close to 2000 business cards. Holy and moly. Yeah. It, it's <laughs> really fun to go around and talk with, with businesses now and finally started to tap into people that have older business cards. Um, so that's been exciting to, to get those as a, donation. And then yeah, other contemporary collecting like last year and this year have been totally dominated by collecting things related to COVID. Right. Uh, so any and everything, um, you know, and, and that is something we, you know, is going to be an ongoing growing collection as well over the years. Yeah, I, I've really enjoyed just, you know, hearing about the, the business card project. Anytime you go out with Haley, whether it's like <laughs> to a community art fair or a farmer's market, I think like some of these business cards, they're not from, you know, people you might expect to have business cards. So, I mean, even small cottage industries that might only exist for a season of someone selling jams, um, you know, people who are like creating different creative little things from, you know, uh, soaps and wood burning to right on through to jewelry and all these other things um, that they have these business cards and they might be, you know, someone who's just seasonally here for that summer um, and so being able to have a record of some of what was going on here in Ketchikan through those business cards has been really kind of interesting to see how it's developing from the, the more current business cards to those past business cards that you're kind of also getting. Yeah, it, it's been really interesting to see, um, Arlene, about, you know, the types of businesses, kind of how long businesses have been around, you know, where places move around, who owns businesses. It, it's been a really interesting way to, to represent a lot of people that wouldn't normally be represented in the collection, as well as businesses. And 
sometimes they contain like great information. I mean, usually older business cards were really good about having addresses and more current ones don't necessarily do that, which is a little frustrating, but, but there's, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of people that, you know, might not do anything, you know, necessarily extraordinary, but, you know, we've got a way to represent them. And um, as I've had, you know, the business cards out and been doing different organizing and, and research on them, it's been really fascinating to see them as kind of memory triggers for people <laughs> in the community of like, oh, wow, you know, I remember that person or, oh, that business, you know, that was where I went and did, you know, X, Y, and Z. And then you get all these really wonderful stories that you might not necessarily have. And the, the bonus too, is that they're small. <laughs> great too. They don't take up a ton of space. No. What I found really interesting about our contemporary collecting is two things. One is that as the word spreads, more and more people are getting interested and reaching out to us saying that they have something to represent a protest that happened last year or um, photos throughout town. And then the other thing is it's really a, a full staff uh, project, especially with the, um, the COVID collecting is um, as Haley was saying, it, it's ongoing. And what we've been doing is really keeping a, um, an ongoing record and a collection that is someone might go to an event or someone might bring in a sticker that represents COVID or a mask or speaking to someone. And with all of our different interests as coworkers in our personal lives, we can all bring different perspectives when we come together to represent our community. Right. Yeah, and, and I should say too, we've also, you know, and especially with COVID and well, we'll get into more of that transition to digital probably later on in the podcast, but this last year, especially we've started to collect a lot more digital collections. So digital photographs, um, audios and videos, and, you know, we're questioning certain things like saving you know Facebook live videos and <laughs> other you know like TikToks and, and right. other social media things so so we may not have answers on that stuff necessarily but um, it's an area that you know we've recognized is is important and an area where we're likely going to grow into quite a right. bit. Yeah, and as to our collections, I know Haley touched on it a little bit here. Um, so we're we're actually joining you from the Totem Heritage Center. We're, you know, in one of the kind of student uh, work areas. So one of our <laughs> side rooms for our Native Art Studies program classes. So uh, your the listeners can't see it, of course, but uh, we're surrounded. Uh, we've got the photo booth for students to photograph their work behind us uh, and directly in front of us with you know, nothing leaning on it, of course, is uh, Dorica Jackson's loom, you know, is set up in this area. And uh, you might even hear the soft murmurations of some visitors, you know, as they go <laughs> through the exhibit spaces. But yeah, it's just really great to have those three facets of things, to have exhibits out there that are happening, to kind of see some of that programs and projects aspect of students creating new works or learning. Uh, and then, of course, you know, archives and our collections as well. But yeah, I thought we'd, we'd set the stage a little bit for you. But, uh... <laughs> well, and I love that you just did that because the next question, this is such a beautiful segue into the next question <laughs> we have on our list. I don't know if you planned that. I'm not going to question that. 
but one of the things we talked about a little bit in advance was was going into the intersection of archives and collections like that with exhibits and programming. You know, this is not a thing I do a lot of, partly because, you know, a lot of what you have is going to be 3D objects, and that's just not going to be a major component of my holdings at my institution. But as you're working on public programming, whether that's an exhibit or some kind of event, what is it that you think the archival collections bring to that mix, mix, whether it's the business cards or anything else in your holdings? Sure. I mean, I, I guess I can make a short statement. I'll pass it off, of course, to volume. <laughs> um, but for me, everything that I do that's programs based is really, you know, anchored in the strength of our collection and our archives of what we have um, and how we can actually uh, create programming to connect our community with the collections. And I know that, uh, I, I guess I can pass it right off to Ryan, because that's kind of that intersection too of exhibits with all of that. Yeah, a, a lot of people don't necessarily, when they come to visit um, and when they see our exhibits, they don't necessarily see what goes on behind the scenes. And that within exhibits, I'm uh, the only one on the that's actually creating our exhibits, but I'm working with collections and programs and other other co-workers that we really form an exhibits team together and that we we all function together to actually produce this whether that is working with collections and figuring out what we actually have as objects and photos and research archives or programs and tie-ins of how uh, visitors can interact with our exhibits to be able to either create something and take it home with them or be able to, I guess, hold or interact with uh, certain educational objects that we can um, display within the exhibits. Yeah, we really do. We connect people to, you know, stories and try to invest them in those objects. And that's, you know, partially what they're going to see on display or a program where they can interact or learn more, and, you know, kind of focus on what the takeaway is from that exhibit mm -hmm. space. But it really is all anchored and, and the foundation of that is the collections that we hold. Um, so, I mean, I can't create a program without having the background knowledge of, you know, what's being put on display with Ryan or what, uh, what Erica Brown and Haley Chambers uh, over in collections are, you know, actively doing the research for, or they you know, have such a, a great, you know, broad understanding of what our collection holds. And then also, you know, the areas that we can expand into or, or areas that we okay. don't necessarily have information about. And that's always an opportunity for growth for us too. And likewise, right. I can't do an exhibit that's not based in our collections. And like Erica said too, is a lot of our exhibits, they end up being opportunities for us to realize gaps in our collection and then reach out to the community to see what types of objects or photos or information that they might have that we can then fill those gaps of information. Yeah, I, I was teasing these guys a little bit before while we were doing the setup that, you know, no man's an island, but I was like, but we're on an island. So. <laughs> something funny about that. Yeah. But but yeah, I, I think a really nice example of what, you know, Erica Jane and Ryan are talking about is with our most recent special exhibit, which is called Into the Wind. And it's about... Um, how our community utilizes and kind of celebrates aviation. And, you know, when we, when we started it, it, we realized that a lot of the collection was a bit older as far as like the, the items that we had for aviation, because we had done an exhibit on a specific company that, that was really important here. And a lot of our information, you know, really revolved around that 
that um, particular company. And, um, you know, Ryan was um, relatively new to the community and he went out and um, introduced himself and talked to all kinds of different people. Did, um, did you have a final number on like how many it people? Was, it was around 80. Um, it was quite fun because I was mostly getting coffee and pastries with people, which is a great way to get to know the community um, is through food and coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah, like Kaylee was saying is, is making sure that if we don't understand that story and to get a broader story, we need to go speak to the people that have that information that are, have that lived experience and that was so rewarding for us. Yeah. And the, the cool thing was too, looking at the collection again, a lot of it was a little bit more heavy on pilots and business owners. And we didn't want to just tell their story. You know, of course they're important with aviation. Like you can't fly without a pilot. It's not the full story, you know, and, and Ryan, to his credit, you know, he talked to doc reps and, uh, or the doc boys and, yeah. and dispatch. And just people that have flown within uh, Ketchikan for their entire lives. Yeah. And, um, you know, with that exhibit in particular, we ended up getting a lot of things on loan to us. And some of those loans ended up becoming donations, mm-hmm. which is really wonderful because we might not have been able to make those kind of connections. But also, you know, kind of circling back with archives, we've transitioned in recent years to trying to incorporate more archives into exhibits and I'm defining archives a little bit more broadly so not just paper-based items Um, it's a little bit more challenging to make paper-based items kind of sexy in an exhibit Um, (laughs) you know we we incorporate a lot of photographs and an we're really trying to integrate more media into exhibits um, and programs. So I, my cohorts are going to talk about that a little <laughs> bit more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think that's a great example. Um, I know, you know, Ryan just mentioned having talked to all of those people. So whenever the programs kind of started looking at it, we can look and see, you know, here are the, you know, the archival, the letters and the things that are going to be on display and that uh, those stories that Ryan has teased out, so for us to go to Ryan and say, well, hey, what were some of those really dynamic stories or those, you know, those really great tidbits that we should share, whether it was through, um, we have a, you know, monthly museum midday program where we invite speakers to present on different programs. And so it was like, who should we talk to and who should we invite to have that larger forum to be part of that program? And it really allowed us to also collaborate with other entities within the city. So part of that into the wind, we had a, a panel of pilots and the library hosted it. And it was fantastic to be able to, you know, share some of their stories and have that direct interaction with the public, asking questions that maybe we hadn't even thought to ask these pilots. Um, And then for us to, yeah, and then for us to go back again and say, oh, well, we've done these conversations, some of the informal conversations. Um, Who are the people that we can then sit down and record oral histories with? And what can we actually add to our collection space that way that might support future programming or future exhibits? So um, yeah, it's all all really fed into each other. With the the exhibits as well is we're trying to reflect back to our community and we are our community's museum. So having our community come in and see themselves represented within our exhibits. And and part of that is asking, like we were saying, for those photos and and objects, but also the video. And 
what we, like Haley is saying, is trying to bring in more digital media, um, incorporating videos that people have taken of float planes taking off while they're on their boat, or <laughs> a video of a, a young pilot sitting in the, um, in the co-pilot seat while they're taking off and showing, showing that, and having our community say, this is what aviation is to us and then putting that in the exhibit. So some, some of the, the videos that we have in the exhibit are shaky camera phone video <laughs> of planes taking off, but it's cool because it really adds that authentic narrative, that, that story that's being told by our community. Right. Yeah, I mean, there's so many gems that really have been you know teased out and incorporated. Um, I think one of my current favorite ones with that Into the Wind exhibit, and uh, we, we should mention with a shameless plug that it is available online as a virtual exhibit. <laughs> Um, but one of those video components that I just delighted me because it was so Ketchikan, it was so Southern Southeast, was a what was Christmas Eve, and uh, there was a piano that was actually helicoptered over from Ketchikan across the Narrows to Pennock to be delivered. And so we've got this, you know, soundless footage of this piano suspended from the helicopter, curling <laughs> and spinning as it lands, and then it's too with the family having taken photo you know video then of them playing it and everyone dressed the in their day. christmas finery oh. and you know so i mean it's such a snapshot i mean i'm sure it was a special memory for the family but for us as the public or just as museum goers to just look at that and just experience it as this idea of man this is what aviation is here like yeah. it's, it's in all these different facets of things and right and how else do you get a piano home <laughs> yes yeah, and, and Erica Jane's like really hitting on, you know, one of the things that we're trying to do is to really tease out what makes Ketchikan so unique and so interesting, because a lot of communities in Alaska, you know, we have the same stuff. You can go to a lot of museums and find, you know, chainsaws and boating equipment and, extra you know, <laughs> yeah, extra tops. yeah. And, and it's like, well, what are those like really, truly unique Ketchikan stories that make our community special? Right. Yeah. I really like the piano one that's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that you mentioned that this is online because that actually, you keep just building the segues in for me. I don't even have to do them. I should just be quiet and let you talk. I know. Uh, and you know, where they, they flash the link to the website. <laughs> well, we'll put it in, I promise. So the question, the next question kind of is, you know, this last year has been so disastrous for museums with the on-site ones, especially ones that really focus on on-site exhibits. Of course, you've moved to a lot of online exhibits, virtual programs. This has been, honestly, the hardest part for me really has been the learning curve of learning all these new technologies to make these things accessible. Has that been true for you? And you know, is there any of it, assuming a post-COVID world where we can actually get together and chat and be in these spaces and crowded spaces, yeah. how many of these are you going to kind of, do you think you might continue? Well, so the exhibit that we were just talking about, Into the Wind, um, we opened that in March of 2020. The and first week. We, <laughs> no. We nice. We for about a week. Um, crowd. Before, before we really had to limit visitors into the museum. And then about a week after that, we were completely shut down for, I 
think like seven weeks to the public. And our director actually had to, she had to fight and advocate for us to at least have one staff member a day in the building, you know, just Mm -hmm. for simple security purposes. But I know a lot of us were kind of scrambling to grab work and take it home and Um, You know, we were fortunate with the city of Ketchikan that our IT department was able to provide pretty much, I think, everybody in the city that needed it, um, some type of computer or a way where they could access the city's network um, remotely. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was it was stressful and it was frustrating, but I have to say that there were a lot of really good things that came out of the COVID closure that we had and kind of the subsequent closures, because we had been talking about for years, like before I started on the staff. So that was, you know, before seven years ago about really being able to incorporate um, exhibits and our collection online. Our, we use the Past Perfect database. Um, so there's a lot of wonderful features that allow us to do those kind of things. And with, uh, with the COVID closure and kind of our inability, especially um, Erica and I, Erica Brown and I, our job is to work very closely with the collection. And when you're at home in your slippers with your friends, you're not working with the stuff. You're working with the virtual things that we have. And Erica Brown, to her credit, um, she helped us get going with our virtual exhibits and, um, you know, finding a way for us to connect with our um, audiences through our, you know, existing online portals. Um, So it was a really nice, nice thing for us. And we also had um, some other opportunities pop up where we got, we applied for um, a grant and aid through the State Museum to help us rebuild our website so that we have full control of it now. We used to run it through the city of Ketchikan's website and it created some hardships of every time we needed to update something, we would have to talk to IT and um, it wasn't really, you know, efficient for their time or our time. And, you know, now we've got control of that and it looks really sleek. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Check that out at uh, ketchikanmuseums.org. It's very nice looking and it does connect you to that (laughs) online database. (laughs) Nice plug. Very organic. Uh, but, but yeah, it did. You know, one of the things you asked is, is whether or not there are things that we will keep and, you know, roll forward with this right. for us for programming. So um, we've mentioned the Native Art Studies program classes. That was a real, a real pivot for us. Because um, you, I mean, there are definitely classes that cannot be done online. Uh, I mean, we weren't going to do any kind of beginning carving with, you know, people with short tools <laughs> and no knowledge. Um, But we were able to work with a lot of instructors that we might have struggled to actually get them, you know, physically into Ketchikan, even on a good year. So being able to do that virtual, you know, kind of online component, whether it was, um, you know, Evelyn Vanderhoop teaching kind of the entire process of project planning with Raven's Tale weaving of, hey, you know, you've got the knowledge of how to weave, how do you design your project 
plan out your material, you know, map your, your actual pattern, you know, and all that you need. Being able to plug students into a class like that was fantastic for us. And it was neat that we were also getting students that were, you know, far away from the Ketchikan area. Because mm-hmm. normally with our traditional classes, people have to come here. And that's, you know, kind of expensive to stay in <laughs> Ketchikan for a week or two or mm-hmm. really anywhere in Alaska for that amount of time. And we were able to get students from, you know, all over. Yeah, I mean, as far north, I mean, we had, you know, Yakutat and Cake and Juneau and I think someone in Anchorage and, you know, down into the Seattle area. So being able to connect these instructors and, you know, this this class and these opportunities with students from a broader audience was also really great for us. So we're hoping to do some more, you know, hybrid in-person and online classes in the future, but really designing that out so that these opportunities and that knowledge is just really available for those who want to learn. It was it was a big learning uh, curve for us. A lot of a lot of fun things. Uh, of course, we're kind of in rural Alaska, so we did have an entire evening of classes where we were slowly counting down the amount of time left on a generator to run our Wi-Fi network. <laughs> yeah, there had been a bird. Was that a bird? Yeah, when there was an eagle strike. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you know that's something people just don't think about. <laughs> yeah. So when you're running online classes and you're the central hub, and there's uh, been an eagle strike and the power is out, oh. uh, you know they're, they're the things you don't necessarily plan for in advance. No, no, I imagine not. That I don't know that that. I mean. It's, it's, it's happened in Anchorage, but it generally only takes out a chunk of the city. So <laughs> there you go. There you go. But, I mean, there's so many different facets of just being able to hold classes. Where we have the, you know, just so many great uh, instructors who are involved with us in the last you know, year, year and a half of, of planning and you know executing these NASP, the Native Art Studies Program classes. So it also gave us an opportunity to try out like different schedules yes. too, which was mm. I think something that we had been curious about before. But again, you know, trying to have a class over, um, you know, a month, that's challenging for some people that might not live in our community. So that was kind of a fun opportunity to just see, you know, hey, can this work if we, you know, have a class a couple times a week versus every single night? Ah, mm-hmm. uh, Yeah. But um, as far as like other collection stuff, I think we've got about Uh, somewhere around a thousand records up on our past perfect online. And we're really eager to get some more information out there. It, it takes so much longer than people realize. And we have to go back and do a lot of data cleanup and make sure we've got nice images of things. And, but we've got some, some really fun things that we're hopeful will be really great for researchers. Like over the last, in, in recent years, we've had wonderful student workers who, God bless them, have been able to stand at a, a copy machine all day and make scans of our city directories. So we've got, I, I believe, most of them from the early 1900s up until recent years digitized. And we would like to put that up on our website. So uh, the same with yearbooks, the li- the public library um, in Ketchikan last year had yearbooks from 1950 up until 2020 scanned. And we have a copy of that um, and they don't they don't have a way of sharing that on their website, but we do. And we're really eager to get, you know, both of those resources up because it, it's one just going to be interesting for people. But 
it's also going to hopefully save um, Erica Brown and I a lot of time with research requests. <laughs> we, we get on average, you know, about 300 research requests each year. And that it's a lot for a small staff like us. And the more that we can help, you know, empower people that are seeking out information, the better off we are. So we're, we're hopeful that that might come about towards the end of the year, or at least um, into early next year. Yeah, and I think some of that that COVID mentality too is something we're going to try and keep and, and roll into the you know coming years. Um, there's so many instances, like so many examples we could point out of either people we went to or artists or instructors or just even speakers where we're like, you know what, it'd be cool if we could have someone talk about you know, uh, a book or something that they'd written. And we're like, oh, but they're, they're too big. Like they're too big of a name. We can't make that ask. But I think with COVID, we just started really reaching out and saying, well, why don't we ask? Mm-hmm. Maybe we ask, you know, someone from a larger institute or museum questions that we might not have before just because, you know, we were very focused inward. And I think COVID really did force us to look outward and see what kind of other resources might be available that we could plug into personally, like as an institute, but then also for those people that wouldn't be able to come in physically into our buildings, what we could connect them to and what we could vet and what resources we could plug to. So that was something that we're, I think we're going to try and internalize a little more. (laughs) With our virtual exhibits, we've been able to get up nine virtual exhibits so far. And Erica is going, Erica Brown is going back through some, a lot of our past exhibits um, since we already have the the um, the records, the the information, the labels, we can we can get those up a little bit easier. But like Haley was saying, is for a long time the museum has been trying to focus on getting virtual exhibits up and past per- past perfect online up for our community. And this COVID has really unleashed the floodgates on this. And that what what we've actually been able to do is incorporate virtual exhibit into our regular museum programming now or our daily activities. And now as we develop new exhibits, each new featured exhibit is going to be a virtual exhibit as well. Yeah. Um, and we use um, Google Analytics too to, to kind of see, you know, what how people are navigating through it and, you know, what's interesting. And for me, it's been fascinating to hear, you know, just the reach of the exhibits. Like we, you know, people from every single state in the United States have checked out our countries, lots of Mm -hmm. other countries. Yeah. It's, it's really fascinating to see just how far. And it's, it's really rewarding professionally too, because the work you're doing, whether it's programming and, you know, uh, an offhand program, something that you might, have done in person once, and it's kind of a flash in the plan. People might have enjoyed it. They might have taken something away with it. But our director really encouraged us to look at the projects and the programs and the material and content we were creating and looking forward with it. So, you know, is the thing I'm working on actually going to still be impactful and something that can go back and use in five years' time? Or can we plug it into a virtual exhibit so that it's not just well, we once had this really great exhibit and we had something on display. It's like now we can actually point people to that exhibit, um, plug students and researchers and community members, you know, back into those exhibits that they really enjoyed. So, yeah, I think going forward, it's it's really rewarding, too, to know that the work you're doing will have a lasting impact. Right. Well, so now that raises another question, because, you know, one of the big challenges for all of us, and I'm assuming it's 
it's in some ways magnified for you um, as you have eagles running into your power grid <laughs> um, and things like that is, you know, long-term preservation of digital objects, whether they're born digital and things you're collecting or things that you have digitized where you may still have the original or things, you know, like these exhibits, you know, that's, there's a cost there. There's an effort there. How are you finding your ability to really kind of deal with the volume? Well, we, um, I, I think we're in a very fortunate situation that we're a part of the city of Ketchikan. So we have an IT department and um, they have been really wonderful to work with. I mean, we come to them with really unusual questions and <laughs> they've been you know just really great in helping us figure out how to make it work and i think that you know not my experience from working in nonprofits there's there is an expense with that you know that there has to be somebody on staff who does it or or that's you know kind of roped into another position um, so that's really wonderful and they've been they've been gracious we actually um last year migrated to our own network drive. So before we had shared the city's network and we, we ate up all the space. Um, <laughs> I know I this story. Like five terabytes or something. Yeah, we were, we were the problem kids. So they put us on our own separate network, um, which was awesome because then it freed up all this space for all of the other city departments <laughs> to do more work. But now, you know, we've, we've got a lot more, you know, control over our stuff, but they're, um, they do regular backups and things like that. And, um, you know, we're, we're starting to talk to them about, you know, bigger projects that we might want to be involved with, like our local Ketchikan Public Utilities, they are also part of the city and they have been filming different things for over 10 years and they're still very active um, in filming and they've indicated that they would like to donate, you know, their footage to the museum, but it's like, it's huge. So we're just starting to kind of navigate that process um, and what that looks like. As far as like existing stuff in the collection, we really don't have a lot of media, um, which is sort of a blessing and a curse at the same time. Um, but a, a majority of it was actually stuff that we had created for projects back in the like 70s and 80s. We had different basketry projects and a lot of footage was filmed on pneumatic um, tapes. And mm. a few years ago, we... Um, we wrote a grant, uh, a collections management fund grant with, through Museums Alaska, and we got um, about $10,000 then um, to help us digitize some of the, the media that we, um, you know, kind of considered a little bit more critical. That was right. media that, you know, the format was um, something that, you know, is really hard to find players for things like that, or, or its condition itself was um, in, in rough shape. So with that project, we worked with Summit Day Media in Anchorage. Mm -hmm. um, and we um, also just were awarded a grant of $15,000 um, collections management fund grant this summer. 
um, to continue to digitize um, more of the unstable media in the collection. So we were sending off, or we've already sent off, uh, 284 cassette tapes, a handful of vinyl records, and some Betacam tapes. And (laughs) it's interesting, like this whole process of digitizing stuff in the collection, um, a lot of it was really kind of unknown to us before because we didn't have ways of playing things. And, you know, with, with museums and archives, we also know, you know, how sensitive you have to be to playing stuff that, you know, there's a possibility that things might break or become damaged beyond repair, and then you might lose that data. But we were, we're kind of fortunate here that there's um, a local uh, person in the community who's frequently stopping by the museum and he's very open to helping us view our like eight millimeter and 16 millimeter films. Um, He'll, he's got sort of like a carrying kit that he'll bring with him to the museum and, and help us view um, some of the films and as well as helping us convert VHS tapes to some kind of digital format. And we've also worked with the one of the local radio stations, KRBD. Um, we we have a really strong relationship with the radio station where our program staff goes uh, pretty regularly and they do um, museum reports. And um, we've we've worked with them to, to be able to copy some of our cassette tapes into a digital format. Um, and those are both great, like with the radio station and with our local volunteer, those are really wonderful ways that other institutions can kind of work with their local community to at least get access copies of things. I think for me, a lot of it was just like, I, I was curious, I wanted to know what it was, you know, why are we caring for this thing? Is it important? And the same with things that get offered to us, you know just because it's in an old film canister doesn't necessarily mean, you know, we're the best place for it or, or it's of interest to our community. So being able to at least know what you have is super important. Um, But it's really nice with these grant programs, especially with the current one and the past one that we did, that we're not only getting the access copy, um, which is sort of a lower quality, but easier to share and use copy, but we're also getting preservation copies. And those are, you know, really high quality. They come in a variety of different formats. So hopefully as technology changes and the formatting that they were used on, that they that will carry on into the future, that the, it'll still be a format that can be converted later on. Um, so it's really exciting for us. And, and I, I think we're really, you know, very, we're in a very enviable position. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm glad that Haley mentioned, you know, that that kind of collaboration and that relationship, even just with our local, you know, community radio, they have so much, you know, knowledge base with audio components and things that we didn't like as a staff, you know, we didn't have to deal with knowing how all these different, you know, sound things work. Um, and so just having those access copies or having that relationship to kind of um, see about digitizing things. I mean, that's something that I'm, I'm sure, you know, lots of smaller museums or other communities could plug into too. You know, thankfully we've got a Haley Chambers, uh, you know, on staff who 
is fantastic. The, the grants she mentioned there are grants that she applied for and wrote. And I mean, just seeing the work that's being carried out by collections. Really, I think it, we'll, like, we'll, we're over here, you know, kind of uh, giving fan club. Giving, giving <laughs> fan club here. Um, I'm blushing. Behind my mask. It, it really, it really does speak to you know the power of collections and how it influences every other facet of the museum and the work we do. Because if we don't have access and we're not able to connect the community with the collection, either the records themselves or programs where they can you know explore and celebrate those stories that are you know in the collections, or you know through exhibits where we're actually creating more of those opportunities. Um, you know, it's it's just. It, it, we wouldn't be the same thing if we we didn't have that access and we didn't have those opportunities. No, totally. And with the with the current project that we're working on, you know, I mentioned 284 cassette tapes and the records and the beta cams, and that's you know roughly if you take the actual minutes that a that the different cassettes can hold. You know, we're looking at maybe 400 hours of audio. Um, coming back to us, which is really pretty remarkable. Um, and, and it's exciting for us too, because a lot of these things, you know, we only have the label on them to go by as to what it's about, you know, and there's stuff like fish trap. Okay. What does that mean? Like, what are they going to talk about? And, you know, then there's a lot of, a lot of stuff that, you know, was, was saved from, Kind of our formative years as an organization so it's it's going to be really interesting to be able to um, have a, an understanding of certain things and to certainly um, you know we're excited to uncover things on uh on these tapes and and how we might be able to use them and share them um, oh yeah I've, I've already earmarked so you know Haley presented us with that list of some of the different you know very vague titles on some of these <laughs> and some of them that were tied to things were like oh we heard about that basket symposium in the 1970s and we've seen you know physical programs from our collections of like here were the speakers and here's what some of the activities were and yeah I'm, I'm very excited to kind of see what that might be and then find ways that we can actually share that footage directly again back with our community. Mm -hmm. um, so we, you know, we've got our, our kind of burgeoning uh, oral history program and just creating those opportunities to share stories. You know, one of the right. things I really mentioned are, are uh, kind of collaboration and, and just um, our relationship with our public radio. So um, our local public radio will actually be um, hosting small story segments um, once a month for us coming up. Um, as part of a special uh, history allowed project uh, where we'll be able to really celebrate some of these new oral histories we're recording, but also as a platform so that we can share and really excite people about some of these other oral histories from the collection that are being uncovered or maybe that we haven't been able to share as widely before. In the introduction to this podcast, I said that we'd found a reasonable dividing point. That might be a pretty broad use of the word reasonable. But the good news is that if it sounded like a bit of an abrupt cutoff, there's more coming. If you're listening to this on the 18th or 19th of October 2021, I promise that part two will be coming on Wednesday. And if you're listening to this later, the good news is that you can just hop right over to the next podcast and forget I ever interrupted the conversation. Thanks to Haley, Erica, Jane, and Ryan for the peek into your work lives, sharing your commitment to your community, and for giving me new insight into what it's really like to live and to work in a place where your online workshop just might be interrupted by an eagle. And if you want to have a piano delivered to your house for the holidays, it's not coming on a truck.
Thank you for listening to Archiving AK. To find more of our podcasts, head on over to our website at archives.consortiumlibrary.org and look for the podcast under the News and Events tab.